Hello, once again, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on the Practicology Podcast. This is our second episode of going through John Stott's Why I Am a Christian. Last week, we talked about Chapter 2 and the Claims of Christ. And if you're following along in the reading schedule, you will have read Chapter 3 on the Cross of Christ. And we appreciate you participating in the Reading Challenge with us. You don't have to, to enjoy the episodes, but uh, we hope that the book is being a blessing to you so far. Yeah, and speaking of challenges, back in episode 146, you put out a challenge, Matthew. Uh, I'd been talking about Song of Solomon 2 and suggested that we need to make these the words we wake up to. Mm-hmm. And you challenge listeners to come up with a technological way of making that happening. Well, guess what? Our listeners never disappoint. Connie Jess wrote in to tell us that Michael Card has uh, written a song based on this passage. The song is called Arise My Love. Are, are you a Michael Card fan by any chance, Matthew? I am a little bit of a Michael Card fan. I haven't been listening to him a whole lot lately, but uh, I did go through a phase where I listened to a lot of him. I think he puts out some fantastic stuff. Yeah, yeah. His lullabies for kids. I mean, our, our children grew up on that and and Helen and I just love them. And then there's a song he has about, um, I think, the, the foolishness of God based on 1 Corinthians 1. And it is so powerful. So some really deep stuff there. But, but anyways, you can buy the song uh, Arise My Love and use it as an alarm. For the last four or five years, I've been using His Heartbeats by Andrew Peterson, but maybe it's time for me to switch it up. <laughs> Sounds like an excellent idea. And yeah, thank you again, Connie, for listening and for responding with that helpful solution. We're always grateful to hear from listeners, and it means a lot to us that you continue to join us week by week. But we need to get back to our reading challenge, and this week's reading was chapter three of Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. One of the reasons reading books is so important to me is that it helps me expand my understanding of the cross and stave off the staleness that comes in my appreciation of Christ and his work at the cross. And reading this chapter by Uncle John, as some people called John Stott, uh, it, it can definitely have this effect on us. Yeah, good point. The gospel is an old story. Just like a a song maybe you sing in Sunday school or in a gospel meeting, tell me the old, old story. But sadly, the gospel can become old to us in another sense. And that's what you're warning us against, Mike. It, It can get old and stale for us. We can lose our appreciation of it. And I think you're right, Mike, that taking time to read choice books can really stir up our sense of wonder and awe as we should have at the death of Christ all over again. Yeah, and one of the ways books can do this for us is by teaching us about the cross. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 3.8? He just couldn't get over the fact that God had entrusted him with the job of telling Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So there are endless riches to who Christ is and what he's done. There are endless riches to what he accomplished for us at the cross and in the empty tomb. And We never need to worry that we'll get to the bottom of it all and there'll be nothing left for us to learn about the cross. So true. So maybe one of the reasons the old story can get old for us is that we don't grow in learning more deeply about the riches of the cross. I think that's what you're saying. Uh, I mean, think about eating. Ribs are delicious. But if you ate ribs for breakfast, lunch, and supper, and snack, day after day after day, they would lose some of their tantalizing taste for you. But if you vary things up a little bit, and if you only have ribs once a month, not a bad idea, then you probably never tire of them. Yeah, remember, Paul says there are unsearchable riches in Christ and his work, and you can look at the cross from thousands of different angles, and each perspective reveals something uniquely beautiful about Christ's death. But the problem is we get locked in on one angle on, on the cross. That's, 
the point of your ribs there uh, example, Matthew. There's a whole banquet to feast on, but we keep coming back to just one of the many dishes. So here's what I mean. Is there any truth in the Bible more precious than the truth that on the cross the Lord Jesus became my substitute? It's wonderful, but it doesn't cheapen that wonderful truth at all to remind ourselves that that's not the only thing Jesus did for us on the cross. We need to learn about all the things he accomplished there without ever forgetting or misplacing that central one that he died as my substitute. Mm -hmm. So in our chapter, Stott is getting the ball rolling on that a little bit, right? He gives three of the multiple reasons that our Lord has laid down his life at the cross. First, Christ died to atone for our sins. Second, Christ died to reveal the character of God. And thirdly, Christ died to conquer the powers of evil. The first one goes along with what you were just saying, Mike, about Jesus being our substitute. The second one, where he reveals the character of God, means he is our teacher. And the third one, where he dies to conquer the powers of evil, means that he is our victor. Yeah, and if you read Stott's bigger book, uh, The Cross of Christ, you'll see that he treats quite a few more images or themes or motifs that unpack the meaning of the cross. The point is that what happened at the cross is so great an accomplishment that no one image, no one theme is enough to capture it all. We need all of these images. So here are a few more. There's the imagery of human relationships. Christ reconciled us to God through his death. There's the image of the slave market. Christ redeemed us through his blood shed at the cross. And then there's the world of temple worship. Christ is our sacrifice who offered perfect worship at the cross, and so on. But the one I've been learning to appreciate more and more over the last 10 years or so is, is the last one Stott mentions there, uh, how, how Christ died to conquer the powers of evil. So we could say, Mike, that this is the imagery not of human relationships, uh, nor of the slave market, nor of the temple, but this is the image of a battlefield, right? Yeah, that's right. And just just watch how this opens up a whole new world of vistas with which to view the cross and adore the one who went there for us. And the name we can give to this theme is Christus Victor, Christ as Victor, Christ as Champion. And I wonder, is there an eight-year-old listening to us right now? You're with mom and dad, you're in the back of the car traveling somewhere. And, and when the Bible talks about the cross, I want you to hear that it's talking about a war, a battleground, a great fight. And uh, to our eight-year-old listener, I, I think you're able to say, I hope you're able to say, you, I hope you know this and believe this, you, I hope you're able to say, Jesus died for me. But once this episode is done, I hope you'll also learn to say, Jesus didn't just die for me, he fought for me and won. Well, I hope it doesn't burst your bubble, Mike, if there is an eight-year-old in the car and they're saying, hey, Mr. Mike, I already knew that. I like to sing the song at Sunday school about David fighting Goliath and in the chorus we sing, but Jesus fought a greater fight upon Mount Calvary. He conquered sin and death and hell by dying on the tree. Well, I'd love it if um, he burst that bubble for me, especially if he actually sang the song for me. We've we've got a lot of Sunday school songs on the episode so far, it seems, today. And, you know, maybe, maybe Christmas is still fresh enough in our memories that someone else listening is thinking of a Christmas carol right now. Uh, God rest ye merry gentlemen. And there's a couple lines in there that go like this. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. 
I know some Christmas carols can distort things, but there's a great value in many of them too, in uh, just helping us recapture themes in Scripture that sometimes we lose track of. And one of these themes is the theme of Christus Victor. Okay, but some of us are not going to be as sharp as that eight-year-old Mike. Uh, we're going to need a little help seeing that this theme or image is not just found in Sunday school songs or Christmas carols, but found in the Bible. Can you help us there? All right, so let's get the scripture then. But I am going to let uh, John Stott help us all the same. In his bigger book, The Cross of Christ, he shows from the Bible that God's conquest over Satan through Christ took place in six stages. So let's just work through them one by one. Stage number one is this. The conquest is predicted. Yeah, and that first prediction is given in Genesis 3.15. Some people refer to it as the Proto-Evangelum, the first gospel. God is speaking to the serpent, ultimately to Satan himself after Adam and Eve sinned. And he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So the war imagery is quite clear there already. God says there'll be hostility between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And then that singular offspring or seed or son of the woman will strike a death blow to the serpent's head, even as the serpent will strike a, a lesser blow to his heel. Yeah, so this is the conquest predicted. God is promising that a male offspring will come who will defeat Satan, but at great cost to himself. He will win, but he will suffer a wound in the process. You see how prominent this theme is in the Bible. It's right here at the very beginning. The promise of the coming snake crusher who will defeat evil and rescue God's people. And there's a lot more in the Old Testament about this theme as well. We, we see God himself is presented as the divine warrior who fights in battle. But let's come quickly to stage number two, which is the conquest begun. And I think Peter describes this, doesn't he, when he's talking to the Roman centurion Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. Uh, let me read these words. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. So the conquest began with Jesus' public ministry as he went around healing people from disease, freeing them from demon possession, and delivering them from the tyranny of the devil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whenever I think about the beginning of the conquest, I can't help but think of C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you can see I still haven't forgotten about our eight-year-old listeners, <laughs> you know, in the back of the car. And and remember how Narnia is bound under the, under the oppressive rule of the White Witch, and it's always winter, and, and there's never Christmas. But then these four children show up in fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. I guess that's the uh, conquest predicted. And, and the snow begins to melt. The grass begins to appear. Christmas comes. Uh, everyone can feel that the power of evil is waning. They're, they're saying, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. He hasn't yet defeated the Wicked Witch, but the conquest has begun. I love that line, Aslan is on the move. And I was actually thinking of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia as well when uh, you mentioned this as your subject for the day. And just as the beginning of Aslan's conquest is seen by cold giving way to spring and snow giving way to grass, so the beginning of Christ's conquest over Satan was seen in this world by Christ rescuing people one by one from the diseases and demons that Satan was using to put them in captivity. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And when we read the gospel stories, we're maybe struck by just how prominent Jesus' work of casting out demons was. But you know, if the big story of the Bible is is really a, a big story of a war, a, a battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, it makes sense that when the long-promised seed of the woman arrives, that Satan's oppression in the form of demon possession would be at its peak. And you know, Jesus in Mark 3.27, he, he points out, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. And maybe this goes back to Mark 1, 12 to 13, you know, the, the testing in the wilderness. Jesus is the mighty one uh, that John the Baptist foretold, the, the mighty one who bound the strong man and plundered his goods. And uh, I'm picturing Satan like a cat who has captured a whole bunch of mice. He's put each mouse under a cup and he's going to come back and play with them and torture them and kill them. And in his coming to our world and victory in the wilderness, Jesus bound that strong man. And, and he's begun lifting up all the cups so that those oppressed by the devil could walk free. Amen. So the conquest promised in Genesis 3 began in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus on the earth as he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil. Uh, we could back up a little bit, I guess, and see even Christ's birth as part of that beginning of the conquest too. Yeah, so again, I think this theme appeals just as much to the 8-year-old in me as it does to the 42-year-old in me. Uh, Jesus hadn't yet reached the age of 2, and already Herod and his soldiers were waiting for him with their swords uh, in, in the birth narratives, you know. And you see in this theme of Christus Victor, Christ our warrior and champion, the incarnation is actually nothing less than an invasion. God through Christ invades enemy territory, uh, a world ruled by the God of this world. And as soon as he does, the war begins. Which is wonderful, but of course, that wasn't all there was. That wasn't enough for Jesus to just come here and be born here. It wasn't enough for him to endure the time of testing in the wilderness and, and teach and heal and cast out demons. The whole point of this episode is that Jesus fought the greatest fight at Calvary, at Golgotha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now you've brought us to stage three, the conquest achieved. Because where was it that Jesus defeated Satan? It was at the very cross where Jesus died. Uh, Paul puts this so well in Colossians 2. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What a statement. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Uh, definitely sounds like a conquest achieved. He's disarmed those rulers and authorities, the dark forces of Satan. He's put them to open shame. He's made a spectacle of them. So God clearly triumphed over them through Christ and his cross death. Yeah, and how did God disarm the dark powers through Christ? Well, if we just back up a verse, we see it. It speaks about this record of debt that stood against us. And, and God took it and he nailed it to the cross. So somehow God's disarming of the evil powers has to do with his nailing that record of debts to the cross. Doug Moose speaks of this record of debts as an IOU. Each one of us has broken God's word, and uh, there is a list, as it were, of, of all of our transgressions and sins. 
And um, it says in our passage that God has taken this record of debts and he has nailed it to the cross. So God has disarmed the demonic host. He stripped them of their weapons. Their secret weapon, as you've commented from Doug Moo, was this record of debts, this IOU, our, our record of sins and our track record of breaking God's law. So this is like uh, Satan's ownership paper in a sense, or how he possessed a, a dominion over us because of that. That broken law was his claim on us, that we were his, that we deserved death and judgment and hell, and he would hold that against us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if I could just go back to Narnia again, I mean, Edmund commits treachery. His act of treachery is the witch's claim on him. That That's her secret weapon that makes her cackle with confidence. You know, she, she knows that the law says that the one who commits treachery forfeits his life. Edmund's blood belongs to her. But Aslan, who has done nothing wrong, he goes in his place. He goes in the darkness of night to the stone table alone where all the evil forces are waiting for him. And even though with one roar he could have chased them all away, he laid himself down, allowing them to mock him and taunt him and even shave off his glorious mane and, and bind him. He allows the witch even to plunge her knife into him and kill him. And it looks like evil has won. At one level, evil has won. But at a deeper level, actually, Aslan has disarmed her. For in giving his life for Edmund, he has stripped the witch of the one legitimate weapon she had. And when Aslan rises again to life, she has nothing left to stand on. So I want people to think about that because uh, Mike is teaching us something important here. Influential theologians have come and gone down through the years who have tried to pit one image of the cross against another. Um, so some people say, no, Christ's death was the, that was to atone for sins, penal substitution. And someone else will say, uh, no, Christ's death was an example, something for us to emulate, not, not our substitute. Or someone else says, no, stop putting so much emphasis on how he died in the sinner's place. The real emphasis of the New Testament is not his substitutionary sacrifice, but his victory, Christus victor. But what the passage in Colossians 2 brings out and what you're saying is being illustrated by the story of Aslan as well, is that actually the theme of substitutionary atonement is at the heart of all the other images that we have about the cross. So they're also worthwhile bringing out, but this substitutionary atonement is central to all of it. That's what you're saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such an important point. Remember how we began by saying Christ didn't just die for us on the cross, he, he fought for us. But now we're seeing how closely these two relate because <clears throat> he fought for us and, and won for us by dying for us. God took that IOU and he nailed it to the cross. Jesus paid the IOU. And this takes us back to stage two, the conquest begun for Jesus' death in our place on the cross is only effective if he lived a sinless life. Had he sinned while being tempted in the wilderness, for example, had he sinned at any point thereafter, the record of debts would have been against him too, and his death would have been for his own self. It would have been of no value to us then. Mm -hmm. So, we can't emphasize Jesus' death to the exclusion of his life, nor can we emphasize his death to the exclusion of his resurrection. And, and so, having said that, let's just come quickly to stages four and five. We'll just do these quite quickly. Uh, but stage four is the conquest confirmed and announced. So, Jesus achieved the victory at the cross, and in rising again, he made his victory public. He was vindicated by his resurrection. His, his conquest was confirmed and announced when he physically rose from the dead. 
And uh, we, we could show how this is illustrated by the Aslan story as well when he comes back to life, but I think we better keep moving a little more quickly and let's go to stage five. Stage five is the conquest is extended. So after rising again, Jesus empowered his disciples by the Spirit to proclaim the risen Christ. And as they preached the gospel, people responded in faith. And in the language of Colossians 1, they left the domain of darkness and were transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Or in the language of 1 Thessalonians 1, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. As the early church went through the world preaching the word, the conquest that was achieved by Christ at the cross and was confirmed by Christ at his resurrection was now extended as heart after heart bowed in obedience and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, <clears throat> a quick question for you. If, if God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and the conquest is achieved, confirmed, and now it's being extended through the preaching of the gospel, how is it that Satan still has power to operate and, and do so much damage? Yeah, that's the big question. And I take it that you're hinting at there must be uh, another stage in this conquest yet to come. Yeah, so this is, uh, again, such a critical thing, right? Christ has achieved the victory. Uh, he has landed a death blow on Satan. There's no doubt as to how this thing is going to wind up, but it hasn't wound up yet because there's still stage six to come, and that is conquest consummated. All right, so let's summarize those six stages of the conquest. Conquest predicted, begun, achieved, confirmed, extended, and we wait for its consummation. Yeah, this time that we're living in right now between the achievement of the victory and still waiting for the consummation of the conquest, it, it's been likened uh, before to World War II, you know, where there was D-Day and the Allied forces made a, a significant move there at D-Day that, that basically spelled the end of the war. I mean, it was, it was going to end, but it still wasn't V-Day yet. There was still a whole bunch of fighting to do. Um, Hitler and, and his... His uh, Axis powers were on the way out, but there was still a lot of fighting to do. And, and that's where we're at right now. Christ has achieved D-Day, uh, but we're waiting for him to return for, for V-Day. And, and just see how this theme gathers up the whole Bible. You know, the Bible begins with that promise of the snake crusher in Genesis 3. The snake crusher comes in the Gospels and strikes Satan a mortal blow <clears throat> to the head by dying for sinners at the cross. And then the Bible ends with the book of Revelation telling us that the snake crusher's victory will be consummated. He will have the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, bound for a thousand years during the millennium. You can see that in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 2. Then come down to verse 7, and we see that Satan will be released for a final fight, and he will be insane enough to try and fight one more time. Evil is insane after all. And then the snake crusher will have him thrown into the lake of fire with all his minions where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever, verse 10 of Revelation 20. And then evil will have lost. And then good will have won. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a garden city with the tree of life and the river. And God and the Lamb will be on the throne and we will be there. But one character won't be there. He'll be missing forever and ever. And we'll never miss him. The serpent's power will be over. Amen. I loved your words right there. Then evil will have lost. Thank you, Mike, for helping us trace another theme that the Bible has, another image it has for the riches of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. 
we're very thankful for John Stott's writings on this subject as well. I, I just think of a, a few lines near the end of his chapter on the cross of Christ that I'd love to, to quote here. Why am I a Christian? One reason is the cross of Christ. Indeed, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. It is the cross that gives God his credibility. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as the God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? The crucified one is the God for me. I, I love that. I love those words of Stott. I love this chapter. Any other books you'd say we could read to grow in this area, the subject of the cross? Well, if people just heard you quote that last quote there, Matthew, and thought, oh, I want more of that, <clears throat> a great place to move on to would be The Cross of Christ by Stott. Uh, he, he really unpacks some of these things out at a deeper level and more extensively. Uh, but if that's too thick and intimidating, why not try The Biggest Story Bible Storybook by Kevin DeYoung? Uh, we read it together last year as a family, and it's a good way to introduce young hearts to this theme, uh, this theme that goes right through the whole Bible and and comes to a climax at the cross. All right, thank you. Let's all learn to view the cross from the theme of Christus Victor as well as the other themes as well. And when we do, uh, the incarnation becomes an invasion into this world. The cross becomes a conquest. Golgotha becomes a battleground. We learn to say not just Christ died for me, we hold that, it's precious, but also that he fought for me. Our savior becomes the snake crusher and the Christian life becomes a battle in which God is able to give us victory through Christ. Don't forget to read chapters four and five in the week ahead. Uh, we pray they'll be a blessing to you and we'll have some thoughts on those chapters in our next episode. Amen, the Lord bless you.